0: This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. It's the January 5th edition of the PFTPM Podcast Wildcard Weekend Preview. That's the main reason we're doing this today. Also going to answer some of your questions. Had an interview tentatively scheduled, but the person who was supposed to be interviewed didn't call at the appropriate time. I'm not going to name names. I don't know that I teased who it was going to be. Regardless, we'll try to get that same person next week. Look, these are busy times. It happens. So, no interview today. That means you got to hear more from me, which means most of you are probably clicking on to something else right now. Before you go, though, let me tell you about John Gruden. Tuesday press conference. The worst-kept secret is no longer a secret. Gruden will be introduced as the next coach of the Raiders. I firmly believe that he was offered the job, and accepted the job before Jack Del Rio was fired. I firmly believe that the Raiders violated the Rooney Rule because the job was never open. How can you interview a minority candidate for a job that is never open? It was never open. And plenty of people have been saying to me, oh, the deal still could have fallen through. No, it couldn't have fallen through. Because if you're the Raiders, you don't fire Del Rio unless you have a completely and totally done deal with Gruden. Think of it this way. Let's say there were three terms that were still in dispute between Gruden and the Raiders after they engaged in preliminary negotiations, while Del Rio still had the job, which is really, really bad form. And the same agent represents both guys. I have a feeling that the agent isn't going to be representing Del Rio for much longer. But let's say there were three issues that were open. Gruden wanted one thing, the team wanted something else. Money, power, anything. If you fire Del Rio before you have an agreement on those issues, what have you done? You've given Gruden all the leverage to get what he wants on those issues. Or anything else that may be pending. Or he could go back on something that he had previously said is okay with him. There's no binding agreement yet. You don't fire Del Rio until the deal with Gruden is done. Now, that doesn't mean signed. That means the terms are reduced to writing and everybody says, okay, that works. Just as a memo, a memo of understanding, a term sheet, whatever the case may be. And the NFL had a media briefing on Friday. And the issue came up of compliance with the Rooney rule. And look, I understand. I understand the way the political winds are blowing right now in the country. I understand there's a lot of people who think the Rooney rule is per se discriminatory in reverse fashion. Until the NFL changes the rule, your concerns about the philosophies behind the rule don't matter. Until the rule is changed, all that matters is it must be complied with. You must interview at least one minority candidate for every head coach opening, period. The rule can be as stupid as you think it is or worse. And let's think of some ridiculous example. Let's say now I don't even, I don't even, I don't, I don't want to demean the Rooney rule by coming up with some superficially ridiculous example, because I don't agree with those who say the rule has no place. I think the rule would probably benefit from being revised and I question situations where people already decide who they're going to hire before they fire someone. But ultimately, you can't keep an owner from doing it. But what you can keep an owner from doing is actually hiring the person. See, Gruden wanted the two in the bush before he gave up the bird in the hand. So he got the two in the hand before he told the one in the other hand to get the hell out. Because once you fire Del Rio... Gruden has more power, and the only way they're firing Del Rio is if Gruden is done, and I asked Joe Lockhart, the NFL spokesman today, after the issue came up, very direct question, very simple question, is it permissible to come to terms with a new head coach before you fire your old head coach? He said he didn't have the answer immediately available, and he'd get back to me, and that was five hours ago or thereabouts. I sent a follow-up email reminding them And I want to see what they have to say about it because either you're allowed to do it and it's a stupid rule that allows circumvention of the Rooney rule, or you're not allowed to do it and the Raiders violated it. Either way, on Tuesday, Gruden will be introduced as the next head coach of the Raiders. And he reportedly is getting 10 years, hundred million dollars. Now, look, here's how things work in this business. The folks out there who chase information for a living, and I'm not saying they don't have a place we need to be realistic about what goes on and how it works. Most of the stuff that is reported by that churning of the information robots, most of it is announced five minutes later. A lot of it is going to be announced anyway at some point down the road, if not five minutes later within the next five days. Some of it was never going to be publicly announced, but people want it out for a reason. And I think that somebody, maybe both sides in this, wanted it out that Gruden's getting 10 years, $100 million, because it makes it look like a big deal. It attracts a headline. Ooh, this is huge. Hey, the Raiders, they're pulling out all the stops to have a winner for their last year in Oakland. They're going to come rolling into Las Vegas. They're high rollers, $100 million coach. And then it occurred to me once I saw these reports, and everybody's here in 10 years, 100 million. That tells me that there is someone who is calling up all the information robots and saying 10 years, 100 million dollars, go with it. Which is fine, not passing judgment. I'm not. Stop, stop, I'm not. Here's the point. It could all be bullshit. We don't know, unless we see the contract. Who's in a position to second guess? Now, the problem is sources start lying to reporters, reporters start questioning, and maybe reporters become reluctant to use what the source says in the future. But you know what? This business is so competitive now. Most of the people in it are happy to be lied to. They'd rather take one, because here's the thing. Hey, you get lied to. Everybody else got lied to. So if it's wrong, what? Everybody else reported the same thing. Don't look at me. And then you can turn it back around and say to the source, hey, you lied to me. How are you going to make it up to me? That's why Chris Mortensen wasn't mad when he got lied to by somebody at the league office about the 11 or 12 footballs thing three years ago. He came out ahead in that game. They owe him now. He took the heat for helping someone at the league office create concern, confusion, and worry among the Patriots that there actually was someone who was deflating the footballs. And that contributed to a very awkward and unimpressive press conference from Tom Brady early on. Made a lot of people think he was guilty. Well, based upon that false report, there was something to feel guilty about. So you take one for your source and you put yourself in position to get more information later. That is how the game gets played. So 10 years, 10 million a year, it's only worth how much of it's fully guaranteed. And we've seen with more and more coaches in recent years, the rec extension. Rex Ryan gets a multi-year extension. Well, actually, he gets a one-year extension guaranteed. The rest of it is up to the team. We found out the same thing with Jim Caldwell. We thought Jim Caldwell was good to go for next year. Oh, he got an extension. Secretly and quietly got an extension. Yeah, it's a rec extension, One year. Mike McCarthy gets a one-year extension. At least the Packers did it the right way. They extended him through 2019. He had been under contract through 2018. They could attack five fake years on the back end to puff it up. How much of this is real and how much is it fake for Gruden? And how much of it's backloaded? Now, look, I I, I don't know this, but these are fair questions to ask based upon the way that I know this business operates. Let's say that it is, and this is just a round number. I I would be shocked if it's this low. If it's five years, 25 and five years, 75, with the five years, 25 guaranteed, the back five years at 75 isn't guaranteed, right? That's a $5 million a year deal for five years. There's no way it's that low, but you get my point. I mean, we could do other permutations or it could be an $8 million a year deal, seven point five, nine, nine point five, 9.5, whatever the case may be. Gruden wants it to look like 10 million a year. The Raiders want it to look like 10 million a year, and maybe it is 10 million a year, but you got to have an eye on the possibility of BS in this. Now, here's how some of the truth could come out. Because other coaches are going to say, wait a minute, Gruden was 45 and 51 his last six years as a coach. He's been out of it for nine years. How the hell is he worth $10 million a year? I'm making seven. Look at my track record. Look at his. I want to raise. I mean, really, if Gruden's worth $10 million a year, what's Belichick worth? 20, 25? Think about some of these other coaches who have been to multiple Super Bowls, who have a winning record over the course of their career. What are they worth? And even coaches with less experience than Gruden who maybe haven't been to a Super Bowl, this pushes them higher. There's five other vacancies. Has the entry level for an NFL head coach now increased, or is this going to be viewed as an aberration? I think what will happen is if these agents are represented by someone other than Gruden's agent, or even if it's Gruden's agent, right? People are going to use Gruden's deal as the measuring stick for other deals. And it's going to be in the interests of teams that are trying not to get squeezed to put out true facts about the deal. Now, the question becomes, how do they get access to it? I don't know that coaching contracts are as accessible as player contracts. But if I had a coach who could make a very good argument that he's worth more than John Gruden, And he comes into my office and he says, hey, look, you know what? Over the last 10 years, and I don't want to use the word collusion, but something's not right here. The coaching market hasn't grown the way it should. But I'm not worried about that. Here's what I'm worried about. John Gruden's making 10 million. I got more coaching ability in the fingernail on my pinky than John Gruden has. I want more. If I'm the owner of that team and I got a coach who's banging on my door asking for more money... I'm getting that contract because I want to be able, first of all, to confirm for my own purposes that it's not a BS deal. And then secondly, if it is a BS deal, I want to be able to take it to the coach and say, well, look, here's really what he's making. So there's a way that some of this evidence is going to come out as to what Gruden is actually making. And that will be very intriguing if, and when it does come out, we raised the point yesterday about Derek Carr and his relationship with John Gruden, will he be able to take rough and tumble in your face coaching? Chris Sims gave me some intriguing quotes and he gave us an example today on PFT Live. And we try, when we're on TV, even though NBCSN isn't regulated by the FCC, we, we try to adhere to a certain degree of decorum. And Chris Sims, in explaining his relationship with John Gruden, said that Gruden once said to him, you play like worm piss running down my leg, which is just an example of some of the colorful phrases that Derek Carr is going to hear. So he had better prepare his sensibilities and also not be overly sensitive to the very aggressive coaching he's going to get. It will make him better. Sims isn't mad. Sims isn't resentful. It will make Derek Carr better if he can deal with it. The question is, and the concern is, he may not be able to deal with it. Who's going to replace John Gruden on Monday Night Football? We put out a tweet earlier, and I don't know that there's a consensus. I just said, who replaces John Gruden on Monday Night Football? Go. And there's like 2,000 responses. Somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000. Let me check these. Let me see if there's any inspiring names in here. Uh, And and look, I, I, I think their white whale is Peyton Manning. I think they'll try to get Peyton Manning right now. We got 1.8 thousand responses and you've got people who are trying to politic for themselves and it's kind of fun. And you know, this was more tongue in cheek than anything else, but I think they're going to try to get Peyton Manning. And I don't know that they'll be able to pay Peyton Manning what he wants to do it. I think he'd be very good he would be conscientious. He would work and work and work and work and work. He'd be funny and loose and very well prepared in the booth. And I think he would be great. And I think he instantly would be better than Tony Romo, who has instantly become the platinum standard for play-by-play. I'm just not sure he wants to do it. Frank Caliendo is John Gruden is one possibility. I like that. Somebody said anyone but Joe Buck. Do you realize that they're not going to have two play-by-play people in the booth? Buck's not an analyst. So... It's got to be somebody who would be the game analyst. And some of these suggestions, Tebow, Uncle Chaps from Barstool Sports, somebody posted the gif of Bruce Arians doing the dramatic hamster. I, I think Arians would be great. I think he would be especially great if you let him have a little rum and coke, which he is the drink that he drinks when he's not drinking. Let him have some of that throughout the program, and then by the fourth quarter, things should be very interesting, and someone would be hitting the bleep button. Talking about warm piss running down his leg would be the least of the concerns of the censors at ESPN. Brady Quinn on ecstasy is one suggestion. Kind of like that. Randy Moss. Would Randy Moss put in the work? Would Randy Moss? I play when I want to play. Would he really do it? Somebody suggested my internet son, PFT commenter. I could get behind that. LeVar Ball, no thank you. Just some of the suggestions. Will it be somebody on the payroll or would it be somebody that they hire? There will be plenty of people who are already under contract who want to do it. And see, maybe one way to do it on the cheap would be to get somebody who's already working there who wants that gig, who wants to stand out in the high school that is the ESPN campus. Hey, I got the great assignment. Oh, I don't care about the money. I just want the assignment. I want to get what others who are working here want. I want to be the chosen one. And sometimes, you know, it's like handing out VP titles at a bank. Sometimes that's good enough. They could probably save a lot of money going with somebody that they currently employ. They'd have to pay that person more. But they probably would save a lot of money doing it that way than trying to lure someone like Peyton Manning into the organization. I like the idea of three former Cardinals, two of them currently former, one could be former, vying for the same gig, Bruce Arians, Carson Palmer, and maybe Larry Fitzgerald. If you're Larry Fitzgerald, what do you do if they offer it to you? I know I talked about this earlier in the week. Drew Brees, what do you do if they offer it to you? I think they're going to try to make a splash, especially because CBS made a splash with Tony Romo, and it worked. And I think they'll try to have someone in place by May. That's when the networks do the upfronts in New York City, and they're going to want to have someone because they want all the corporate sponsors to buy up all the advertising and be happy about it. So I think it's coming in the next few months, and I think there will be plenty of infighting and backstabbing and rumor-mongering and efforts to make people look bad who may be vying for the job, and it's going to be fun to watch every minute of it. It's been fun to watch every minute of the Patriots story from ESPN and the reaction to it, because Patriots fans already hate ESPN, and I think ESPN knows it. Now, my guess is there are some people at ESPN who are Patriots fans because it's so close to Boston. Bristol, Connecticut. It's technically New England, Northeast. But Patriots fans are still upset about the Deflategate false reporting from 3 years ago. And there were other aspects of the Deflategate reporting that upset people who root for the Patriots. So the story that came today, just another cherry on top of the cherry on top of the cherry on top of the icing on top of the icing on top of the icing on top of the cake. Seth Wickersham, who I consider a friend, He may not feel the same way, but you know what? i got so few friends, I'm going to claim whichever ones that I can. He has a story that delves into detail about the nuances of the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, and Robert Kraft relationship. And I assume you've heard everything that you want to hear about it by now. I assume you've said everything you want to say. You've discussed everything you want to discuss. A couple of points that intrigue me, though. As you prepare to hang out with friends and family, or enemies who are family, to watch the playoff games this weekend, keep these points in mind. First, isn't it funny that it dropped today? That the ESPN machine drops the news of this rift, this schism, if it were, between Belichick, Brady, and Kraft, and suggests it's all coming to critical mass and this could be the end, the day before wildcard weekend. Now, it overshadows the games, but it also sets the agenda for all the pregame shows, including ESPN's which will precede the first game of wildcard weekend. Also, because the Patriots weren't available to talk about it today, there's no Bill Belichick press conference, no Tom Brady, no any, you know, all these players. Hey, have you noticed anything between Belichick and Brady? And I'm sure they're all going to be coached not to talk about it, but that will kick the story up again into early next week. So it was perfect timing. And I doubt that ESPN decided, okay, whenever this story's done, we're going to publish it. I think somebody at ESPN said, when's the best time this week to publish it? If this is the week it's going to be done, do we wait till next week? Do we put it out there before the Patriots play in the divisional round? Well, you know what? The Patriots play the first game and if they lose then and it's over, then maybe, you know, it lingers more because now it's part of the build up. See, that's even, that makes it even more genius. You drop it this Friday, it hovers over wildcard weekend, it gets new life on Monday and Tuesday as players and Belichick are asked about it, and then it continues to linger into next weekend and it becomes a dominant theme before the Patriots play their divisional round game. It was brilliant timing. Brilliant. But it was strategic. And mission accomplished so far. I bet ESPN is pissed that the news came out today about John Gruden. Because what did I lead with? I led with John Gruden. A soon-to-be former ESPN employee stealing ESPN's thunder on a Patriots story by letting it be known that he's going to be the coach of the Raiders. Oh, and Gruden still has to work a game tomorrow. What are they going to say to him on the air? Because for all the people who follow the NFL news on a regular basis, there are plenty of people who are going to tune in for that game tomorrow, and they're going to be oblivious to the news that Gruden's going to be the coach of the Raiders next week. There will be people who know nothing. How does ESPN serve its audience with John Gruden? Do they get it out of the way, right out of the gates? Do they have a message on the screen? Is there a disclaimer? How do you deal with this, that John Gruden is leaving? And and how does he sign off? How does he sign off? Does he acknowledge at that point that he's going to coach the Raiders? And when was he ever even interviewed? Anyway, I'm getting away from my main point. At this juncture of PFTPM. We already talked about John Gruden, but that's how big of a deal it is. All roads lead back to Gruden. Another thing on the Patriots. It's my understanding, and this isn't something that I'm hearing now as part of the fallout, as part of the reaction, as part of the someone chiming in after this report emerged. It's my understanding, and it's been my understanding, the Patriots did try to sign Jimmy Garoppolo. I know that there's a conflict between Wickersham, who says they did, and they offered 17 or $18 million a year initially while he'd be the backup. Tom Curran of NBC Sports Boston says he didn't. I, my understanding is they did offer Garoppolo something. Now, was it a formal contract offer reduced to writing? Probably not. Was it a discussion with Don Yee? Hey, Don, how do you feel about a bridge deal where we would pay your guy more than some starting quarterbacks make? to be the backup to Tom Brady until Brady leaves. And then he's the starter. He gets starter money and he says, well, you know, he's going to be a free agent next year. And he either hits the open market or you use the franchise tag at 22 and or thereabouts. So that's really what we're thinking. See, you never reduce a document to writing. You never submit a formal offer if you know it's not going to be accepted. You negotiate. And usually that's when you know you're at the end of a negotiation. When you quit going back and forth and you say, if this were offered, would it be accepted? And if the answer is yes, then it gets offered. So Don Yee, if this were offered, 17, 18 million a year, if we were to put that on the table, pending a significant increase if and when Tom Brady retires, would your guy accept it? No, he wouldn't. Okay, we won't put it in writing then. I'm glad we know that. So I believe they were trying to get him to sign a bridge deal. He said no. And, and I also believe that... And, and look, I respect what Seth did. And I'm not one of these guys. Apparently he's on radio saying that there are people who are tweeting out contradictory facts to his story, but then texting him that everything he said is right on the money. I haven't done that. I, I told him, hey, look, Seth, I respect what you did, but I want you to know I'm going to be contradicting some of what you reported. And I think he appreciates that. I mean, for and I told him for others, I, I wouldn't tiptoe around it. I'd just do it. My approach in these cases, when I have something that contradicts something someone else has reported, it's shoot first and ask questions never. And I told Seth that. So I didn't tell him, oh yeah, oh great job, and then contradict him. My understanding is, and I heard this very clearly, unequivocally, passionately, there was no mandate given to Bill Belichick to trade Jimmy Garoppolo. The picture that's painted by Seth is that Brady not Brady, but Belichick and Kraft got together two weeks before the trade deadline. They had a lengthy meeting. And the report is that Belichick was told in that meeting, thou shalt trade Garoppolo because he's not part of the future of the team, et cetera, et cetera, yada, yada. Well, here's the thing. If Robert Kraft was ever going to do that, you do that in the off season. You don't do it during the season. Garoppolo is worth more in the off season. Garoppolo gets you more in March, because the team gets the benefit of a full year. Imagine how much better the 49ers would have been if they had Garoppolo from the start of the offseason program all the way through week 17. Maybe they'd be playing this weekend. He's worth more in March. And if Kraft was ever going to say, thou shalt trade Garoppolo, that's coming in March. See, I think the Patriots collectively made a miscalculation. Now, whether it was Belichick or Kraft or whoever, I think they believed. That they could get Garoppolo to sign a contract at some point before he gets close to free agency. That he would sign the bridge deal for the privilege of staying in New England, getting paid very good money, not being at risk of injury, and waiting for Tom Brady to retire. I also think they hedged it from the perspective of thinking that they were going to see a dip in Brady's performance once he turned 40. You know, Brady can eat all the avocado ice cream in the world. Sooner or later, Father Tom is going to whip his ass. And it may be that they decided to hang on to Garoppolo because they thought, you know what, come September, hashtag Tommy is no longer going to be hashtag Tommy, and he's going to be done after this year, and we have the smooth transition of power from Brady to Garoppolo. That didn't happen, although some would argue it's happened in recent weeks. And there are some nuggets in Seth's story pointing out that, you know, I think the game against the Chargers, there was a guy who was open deep, but Brady took the safer route because he didn't want to take a hit. And Brady has been banged up all year. And he's had a lot of interceptions in recent weeks relative to what he's used to. I think if he would have played like this, September, October, maybe they keep Garoppolo and maybe they transition from Brady to Garoppolo. Another factor here is this. Robert Kraft, and this feeds into what Seth reported, but I think it's a dynamic that we need to keep in mind. Now, again, my understanding is there was no mandate to trade Garoppolo, but how can Robert Kraft be in any way responsible for not letting Brady finish his career with the Patriots? Because Kraft, I assume, is still stinging from the criticism he got from the perception that he didn't support Brady enough into Flategate. You get rid of Brady prematurely, I don't know how that flies with the folks in Boston. I don't know if that goes over very well. Now, again, doesn't mean Kraft went to Belichick and said, get rid of Garoppolo, but just another dynamic to keep in mind. And here's the last thing I'll mention about this. Two things. First, and I wrote about this earlier today. The picture painted by Seth Wickersham justifies speculation that Belichick may want out. And that's something I didn't think was ever going to happen. I thought what was going to happen is Belichick stays after Brady leaves and Belichick tries to win with another quarterback. And they still can draft somebody in 2018. They have the extra second round pick that they got from the 49ers by trading Garoppolo now. Or when they traded him during the season. But now that I read this article, I'm thinking, boy... How about Belichick to the Giants? Somebody suggested Belichick to the Lions. Wouldn't that be compelling? And wouldn't that be great for him? He he coached in Detroit 76, 77. It was his second job after a year with the Colts. He was highly regarded by the Lions. It was when this future star was already starting to make himself known. He was coming of age before the eyes of the NFL establishment. And think of it this way. If you had to choose between the Giants and the Lions, set aside your fan interests. If you're a Giants fan, you're going to say, I want the Giants, right? Wouldn't you rather coach a team that's never won a Super Bowl? Wouldn't you rather coach a team that's been through nothing but shit for the last 50 plus years? It's coming up on 60 years of futility, relatively speaking. They haven't won a playoff game since 1991. They've been one and done three times or thereabouts during the career of Matthew Stafford. And wouldn't you want Stafford who's on the right side of 30 over Eli Manning, who's getting toward the end? Do you really think Belichick wants to go from one Tom Brady situation to another? And look, any other team that is interested in Belichick, whether they currently have a coaching vacancy or not, do you not call the Patriots and say, what would it take to get Belichick? And whatever it is, we'll give it to you. Now, the farthest you can go out in a trade with first round picks is three years. Would you give up three first-round picks for Bill Belichick? Would you give up your entire draft in 2018 for Bill Belichick? And the way it works, you don't actually trade for the coach. You can't acquire him against his wishes. You reach an agreement with his current team as to what the compensation would be if you were able to persuade him to sign a contract to come to work for you. His current contract would be ripped up. He'd sign a new contract, and, and in light of the John Gruden deal, you may have to pay a hell of a lot of money to get Bill Belichick. But that's how it would work. First call, hey, Patriots, what would it take to get Bill Belichick? Here's what it would take. All right, we'll give it to you. Can we talk to him about a contract? Sure, be our guests. Hey, Bill, huh? uh, the Patriots have authorized us to talk to you about joining us as our coach. Uh, And uh, we'd like to know how much money, or if you're interested. Uh, He'd probably say something more than, uh. but you know what? The mere fact that the Patriots would agree to a deal prematurely probably would contribute to Belichick wanting to go. And did the Patriots become influenced by Josh McDaniels and Matt Patricia being in demand elsewhere? And do the Patriots say, oh, wait, well, maybe we do bring this to a head. We're going to end up with none of these three guys. Anyway, I don't know that any of that comes to fruition. The joint statement that was issued by Belichick, Brady, and Kraft, I think kind of gets everybody on the same page. And that's the last thing I'll say about this. It seems to the trained eye that some of the sources who were talking to Seth Wickersham are aligned with Belichick. And on the surface... You can look at that and say, maybe Belichick does want out. Maybe Belichick is trying to create a mess. Maybe Belichick is behind this because he's trying to agitate for his own freedom. Or also, maybe this is next-level genius from the master of situational football. Maybe Belichick stirred all this up to force a renewal of vows, to compel the three guys at the center of this to come together and unite against a common enemy, basically everyone else. Comanche from Hell or High Water, enemy of everyone, which means everyone is their enemy. That's the mentality that they need in order to go forward and try to win their next Super Bowl. So maybe Belichick sensed all of the dysfunction coming from the exile of Alex Guerrero. And maybe there is a sense that things aren't right. What better way to bring everyone together than to put this story out there and get Brady and Kraft pissed off And Belichick can feign being pissed off and they all come together and they hold hands and they say, let's go win number six. Highly cynical, I know, but diabolically genius if that's what Belichick did. Now, I think that Alex Guerrero was part of this too. I think he's playing the role of Steve Bannon to a certain extent because he's not happy he got kicked out. But, you know, there's a lot of details. There's a lot of facts. I encourage you to read all of it. And I have a feeling it's going to linger through the weekend and beyond. I have a feeling Monday's PFT PM podcast will have a topic or two about this Patriots situation. The All-Pro team came out today. And I just want to say a couple of things about that. You know, I, I we had a story about the first-team All-Pros who were Pro Bowl snubs. And the immediate reaction is, well, the Pro Bowl process is broken. Now, remember, the Pro Bowl process is 33% fan voting, 33% player voting, and 33% coach voting. The All-Pro process is the result of 50 media members who all cast one ballot each. So you pick one quarterback, two running backs, two receivers, one tight end. You see what I mean? That, That would explain why, for example, Tom Brady had 47 votes at quarterback. Carson Wentz had two. Russell Wilson had one. You get one vote. And sometimes people will split their votes, but for the most part, People just say, okay, here's my team. And here's the structure. And they've revised the structure in, in recent years to try to avoid some of these weird outcomes. They got rid of the fullback. They have running back, and then they have flex, and they have receiver, and they've got edge rusher and interior defensive lineman instead of defensive end and defensive tackle because there were guys like J.J. Watt who were showing up in both. Khalil Mack showed up as defensive end and a linebacker. And that we still have some of that cross-pollination. But ultimately, it's 50 media members. And I'm not going to name names. I don't need any more enemies than I already have. But I looked at the list of the 50 voters. We got a copy of it from the Associated Press. And there's at least one person on there I've never heard of. Now, I've been covering the NFL since 2000. And since 2000. July 1 of 2009, and and I don't want to say then, because I still had one or two legal cases I was handling, which took up some of my time. Let's say by May 1 of 2010, when I had the hay completely in the barn, the law practice was closed. This is all I do. I cover it every day. I think about it all the time, all the angles, all the news, all the trends. And I'd like to think I know of all the people out there who cover the sport, at least at a level sufficient to be included in the pool of the 50 Associated Press voters. And there's, I'm going to scroll through this again. There is definitely one on here that I had never heard of before. And that, 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 that's, sources close to me tell me that's probably a, a problem. Um, there's also, and this reminds me of something that happened with the Hall of Fame selection process in recent years. You've got people who are unemployed and or underemployed who still have a vote, meaning that they either currently aren't working in a paid position that that compensates them to cover the NFL, or they're they're in some sort of a part-time gig that really isn't their primary source of revenue. And thus in turn, they're not following it the way that they should. So anyway, not going to name names, but I, you know, we, we assume that this is perfect or close to it. And I'm not politicking for a spot. Same thing as the hall of fame. Don't want it. Don't offer it. Don't want it. Oh, well, that's my way of, of, uh, never looking bad. Cause I don't have it. That's fine. Don't want it. I got enough to do. But I, I, I think we need to take it with a grain of salt. And the fact that they don't publish this when they issue the list, I think they need to attach to it the voters so everyone can be appropriately scrutinized. And frankly, they should release their ballots. They have the full votes for all players. Why would it be a secret to know who voted for whom? I think there should be full transparency, just like I think there should be full transparency with the Hall of Fame. All right, quick wildcard weekend preview, because we've talked about this on PFT Live. We've written about it. Let's just rip through these games very quickly. Titans Chiefs, the Titans don't have DeMarco Murray. I think Marcus Mariota is still banged up with that hamstring that's been lingering. The Chiefs are going to use Tyreek Hill as a kick returner. They've been careful with him during the regular season. This is the time to throw caution to the wind. The offense has gotten better with Matt Nagy calling the plays. Alex Smith auditioning for his next gig which anything short of a Super Bowl appearance, I think, is likely. I think the Chiefs win this game. I I think you can make the argument that the Titans shouldn't even be there. I thought it was going to be the Ravens and the Chargers taking the two wild card spots. It ended up being the Titans and the Bills. The the Titans were not impressive down the stretch. And I think the Chiefs win this one easily. Falcons-Rams on Saturday night. I'll be looking forward to the shots at the stadium. Because we've seen the Coliseum in prime time. For Trojans games. And it's full. And we've seen shots of the Coliseum for Rams games. And the only time that it really seemed to be full and vibrant and exciting was that preseason game against the Cowboys when the Rams first returned to LA. If it's ever going to be full, it's going to be full on Saturday night. And MDS posted something earlier today. I guess he went on one of the secondary market ticket sites. And he could get eight seats all together in multiple different spots of the stadium. That's not a good sign. And I asked Robert Woods on yesterday's PFTPM podcast, if you listen to that and remember it, thank you very much. He played for the Trojans and he plays for the Rams. What's the difference between the game day experience when you play for USC and when you play for the Rams? He said, we'll find out tomorrow night. Which means, so far, not good. You know, they have 4-4 at home. 7-1 and on the road. So, I think the Falcons are going to win. I think the Rams didn't want to play the Falcons. I think they wanted to play the Panthers. I think the Rams are going to develop into a very good team. I think they're in good hands with Sean McVay. They don't have the playoff experience. They're not going to have the home field advantage. And I think the Falcons are going to win because the Falcons know what it takes to win in the postseason. And then the Falcons are going to go to Philadelphia next weekend if they do win, which is fascinating. Bills Jaguars on Sunday. Sunday. Are the Bills going to just have that attitude of we're happy we made it to the playoffs? Or are they going to go in and say, you know what, we're here. You made the mistake of letting us in. Now we're here to kick some ass. And if Blake Bortles has a rough day, that could happen. Now, if LaShawn McCoy isn't 100% or doesn't play at all, that's a problem for Buffalo. Tyrod Taylor has an opportunity to make people in his own organization wrong. They didn't think he was going to be a franchise quarterback, so they benched him because I think they're looking for a Jim Kelly. I could see the Bills moving up in the draft. This is Taylor's chance to persuade the Bills to stand pat with what they have and to keep Tyrod Taylor along or around a bit longer. I like the Jaguars to win that game, but at the same time, I could see the Bills making it interesting. If the Bills are within seven at halftime, Maybe it gets interesting. If the Jaguars are up by 10 or more at the half, I don't think the opening is going to be there for the Bills to pull off their victory. And if the Bills win, they go back to New England where it was 10-10 at the half. Should have been 17-10 because of the Kelvin Benjamin touchdown catch that was overturned by Al Riveron. Fascinating to see what the Bills could do if they get another crack at the Patriots. But first they got to beat the Jaguars. The Jaguars are good enough to win and I think they will. Panthers Saints to wrap up the weekend look, the Saints have already beaten the Panthers twice. The Saints were 0-2. The Panthers were 2-0. and The Saints went into Carolina and thumped them. I think the Saints are the better team. And I think with the experience they have, even though the Panthers have more recent experience and more experienced players than the Saints, I think the Saints have a great combination of guys who have been there and done that, plus guys who are too young to know the difference. And I could see Drew Brees getting in the ear of a guy like Alvin Kamara and getting him ready for what he's going to need to do. And, and I don't think it was an accident that Drew Brees talked in terms of the preparation's no different for the postseason than it is for the regular season, because I think he doesn't want the guys who haven't been there before to get too freaked out by what they're about to walk into. Because if you get freaked out, your preparation's going to suffer. And it's Brees who's going to be there to ensure that these guys don't get freaked out on game day. I mean, think about it. Camaro was five years old when, when Drew Brees got drafted. So Brees is in a position to speak and the Saints players are going to listen, and I think at the end of the day, the Saints fans are going to be listening to the sound of their own applause and cheering, because I think the Saints are going to advance. So, if my predictions are right, what we will have, because I have Titans, Falcons, Jags, Saints, what we will have next weekend is Jaguars at Steelers, Chiefs at Patriots. Did I misspeak and say Titans? Chiefs, I think, will win. Chiefs at Patriots, Jaguars at Steelers in the AFC, and in the NFC, we'll have Falcons at Eagles and Saints at Vikings. That's not a bad division around weekend. And I'm going to talk more about the Eagles next week, but I think the Eagles are reacting in the perfect way to all this talk about how bad they are as a number one seed. Full padded practice this week. They're not going to get caught flat-footed, Whoever has to go into Philadelphia is going to have to give the Eagles their very best. I think the Eagles are going to be ready for a fight. And I think the Eagles are going to adjust their offense to suit Nick Foles, help him build some confidence, take advantage of all those running backs they have. I think the Eagles are going to be better than we thought they were going to be. And I'm I'm almost convinced to say that the Eagles, it depends on who they play, maybe the Eagles win in the divisional round now. Maybe I've changed my mind that they're automatically going to be out. All right. I haven't changed my mind about this. Got some questions. Got nearly 50 of them. going to cram in as many as I can. First question comes from our good friend, Paul Paps, the executive producer of the Dan Patrick show. If Blake Bortles plays poorly and the Jaguars lose, what's his future? Well, if that happens, if he plays poorly and the Jaguars lose, he's done. They will cut him before the start of the new league year, which is what we thought going into the season when he got benched back in August. And there was a belief that if he gets benched at all during the regular season, he gets mothballed because if he has any injury, that keeps him from passing a physical before the start of the league year in March, he gets the full $19 million guaranteed. This doesn't have to be an injury that keeps him from playing next year. All it has to be, and this could happen on Sunday, he gets an injury now that prevents him from passing a physical on or before the first day of the new league year. His $19 million contract for 2018, his fifth-year option as a top-10 quarterback, that $19 million becomes fully guaranteed. If he comes out of this game healthy and he plays poorly and the Jaguars lose, they cut him before the first day of the new league year. But there's a chance they're going to be stuck with him, just like the 49ers were stuck with Colin Kaepernick in 2016. He had three different surgeries after the season. He couldn't pass a physical before April 1. That's when his salary became fully guaranteed. So the 49ers were stuck. And the Jaguars may end up being stuck. At Keith Montesano... Is this a real question, Keith? Can the Ravens make it past the wild card round to get to the Super Bowl this year? They didn't make the playoffs. At Stephen Rudkin, can Mark Davis actually afford to pay John Gruden $100 million? Well, yeah, because it's not $100 million all at once. It's $10 million a year. There's plenty of money there to pay coaches. There's plenty of money. And when you're getting $750 million in free money for your new stadium, it makes it a hell of a lot easier to come up with $100 million over 10 years, if those numbers are real numbers and if that much is actually guaranteed. At Dustin Lomiller, did I hear you say a while back that Tom Brady may or may not be getting paid for his business that treats Patriots players' injuries? Are there rules against this? Are there other ways for players to circumvent the cap like this? That was one of the the suspicions that came up within the last couple of years, that TB12 with Alex Guerrero is providing services to Patriots players at Patriots facilities and being paid by the Patriots. That came up in a Boston Globe article, I think, late 2015, if I recall correctly, and there's a chance I don't. No one ever really explored that. But anytime a team does business with a separate entity owned by a player and money is being transferred, it happens rarely, but I think you have to be skeptical about it and you have to wonder whether or not there's a, a cap violation involved. And I know when Alex Guerrero finally got excommunicated from the Patriots, that was one of the things I thought. Maybe the Patriots or the NFL finally said, we got to put our foot down on this because it's a cap violation. Apparently, though, that's not the case. At Irish Hunter 16, who has the easiest path to the Super Bowl? I'd say it's the Patriots, right? They have two home games, and the elements may work in their favor. And they're either going to have the Bills or Titans slash Chiefs the first time around, and then they get the Jaguars or the Steelers the second time around. I think they have taken up residence inside the collective heads of the Steelers, so that will benefit them. I just think the Patriots who have been at least to the AFC championship game every year since 2010, I think they get back to the AFC championship game and they get to the Super Bowl. Next question comes from Chris Taylor, 4046. If anyone was going to trade for Bill Belichick, wouldn't the Lions make the most sense as a destination due to his connection to Quinn? Yes, I talked about that earlier. Quinn is Bob Quinn, the GM. And I'd rather coach the Lions than the Giants if I'm Bill Belichick. And I think at some level... Some of these guys who have won Super Bowls with one team, I think they're fascinated by the possibility of being the only guy to win a Super Bowl with a second team. Bill Parcells came close. He took the Patriots to the Super Bowl after winning two with the Giants. I think that there may be other coaches out there who already have one ring with one team who are intrigued by the possibility of winning a Super Bowl with another team and becoming the first one to ever do that. And if I'm Belichick, even though he's got a ton of respect for the Giants, man, that opportunity in Detroit, expectations are low. You would be the king of Detroit. For as beloved as Belichick will always be in New England, he'd have that same status in Detroit. Ring of Honor, Hall of Fame, both cities. That's Peyton Manning territory as far as players are concerned. John Lynch as well. That's rarefied air. When you become part of the pantheon, of key figures for an organization. For two organizations, you're doing something right. I'd be very intrigued by the lines if I was Belichick, if he does one out, and who knows at this point. At Hot Rocks 1975, there's a billboard. There's a photo of it. Thank you, Buffalo, and good luck. Route 33 in Buffalo. Andy Dalton and his wife from andydalton.org, the Dalton Foundation. I think at last count, over $250,000 raised by Bills fans, grateful for the Bengals beating the Ravens and delivering a playoff berth to the Bills for the first time in 18 years. That's great. Any chance, this is from I'm Slippin' Dre, any chance of screaming a Smith interview for the PFTPM podcast? No. I doubt he would accept and the offer will not be extended. I was intrigued, though. You know, the other day when Gruden was on ESPN Radio's new morning show, with Mike Golick and Mike Golick and Trey Wingo. I didn't realize at the time, because the quotes that I originally saw came from Sports Business Daily. Apparently, at some point, Gruden said, I heard Stephen A. Smith screaming about this idea that I'm going to get an ownership stake. He kind of took a little shot at Stephen A., a.k.a. Screaming A., and he, boy, he's sensitive about that nickname. And he suggested recently there's a racial component to the nickname. I, no, look, it fits his first name, right? It's a it's a Trump style nickname. That's the one thing you got to give Trump credit for. Whatever you think about him as a president, as a person, boy, he comes up with biting nicknames that get right to the heart of the issue. It fits. If his name was Joseph A. Smith, Screaming A. Smith would make no sense. And look, Stephen A. has learned how to modulate. And how to talk high, talk low, talk loud, talk softly, speed up, slow down. No matter what you're saying, you've got to know how to control your voice. Initially, when Stephen A. was on the best damn sports show period, that's the first time I ever saw him. He had one volume, he had one speed, he had one manner of speaking, and every time he came on, I turned off the TV. Now, I still do that, but not for that reason. Now it's because of the substance of his views, not because of the manner in which he's delivering them. Next up, at the Impact 99, who could be next year's Rams? Maybe the Niners. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Although, I don't think that they'd really fit that box. It has to be a team that we just assume is no good and is not going to turn it around with a new head coach or anything else. I mean, the Giants would have to be that. Right? I, I don't know that anybody's going to do what the Rams did. To go from 4-12 and 12 to 11-5 and five and win the division, I don't know there is going to be a team that turns it around that quickly. Although worst to first is happening more and more often. The Eagles were in fourth place in the NFC East, and now they're the number one seed. I think their accomplishments are getting overlooked because they were so good for so much of the season that we had bought into that narrative that the Eagles have turned it around. I think we get to the end of the season, we kind of take it for granted. If you're on top of it, Carson Wentz is injured and we think they're going to lose in the divisional round, I don't think we're giving the Eagles enough respect for what they have accomplished. At Uncle Phil, how many sailor words did Shefty use in his response to your accidental text? You know, this is going to end up being the next PFT-PM guessing game. And just by way of a refresher, and for those of you who watch ESPN, sorry, I no longer do, when Shefty does his hits from his house, He's got a bookcase behind him, and there's a photo on the bookcase of Morty Seinfeld. That is there because 12 days ago, I saw a video online of Shefty wearing very large black-rimmed glasses, and I texted a member of the media that Shefty is starting to look like Morty Seinfeld with those effing glasses. I accidentally sent the text also to Shefty, and I, I had that... Two seconds. Oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Because if you're capable of doing something like that with something you really don't care about, if you piss the person off, when are you gonna accidentally do it and you know something important, like the boss, right? A friend. If you're gonna talk about somebody behind their back, you don't want to find out about. You know what I mean? So I felt bad until the response came. And to answer the question, and we may play a guessing game. And and this one's too open-ended. I don't know that anyone is ever going to guess exactly what he said, but there were two sailor words. I will say that there were two. I could have drawn that out and had people guess there were two sailor words. And, uh, that's all I'm going to say about it for now at the impact 99. Should Elway get a quarterback in this draft or give Chad Kelly a chance? What could it hurt? Right? Well, Chad Kelly, when's he going to be healthy? I'd give Chad Kelly a chance. I think what the Broncos are going to do, though, is find a veteran. Ideally, another Peyton Manning. Ideally, Drew Brees. Even more, ideally, Tom Brady. Hey, Tom, you are done in New England? Come out here. Although, I don't know that I would count on Tom Brady to win many home games because he's had a hard time winning in Denver. I want somebody who can come in and command the locker room. I want somebody who can come in and the defense will listen. And everyone will be accountable. And I think that's what the Broncos have missed more than anything else in two seasons without Peyton Manning leadership from within, leadership from the ranks of the players. That's what they desperately need. And I don't know whether or not they believe Kirk Cousins can do that. Cousins has been linked to the Broncos. I don't know what kind of leader Cousins can be, although I'm impressed with what he's done without having the team help him lead. That's one thing I learned last year in the off season. It's one thing for John Wayne to come walking through the door, but the team has to help the quarterback lead. Most of these quarterbacks aren't natural born leaders. Oh, let me say, I don't want to say most. A lot of them aren't natural born leaders. The team has to help them lead, right? When the players see the quarterback trying to lead and they look around to the bosses, like coaches, GMs, whatever, what vibe are they getting from them? Do they stop and listen to what the quarterback says? Because if they stop and listen, then that means we better stop and listen too and we better act accordingly. At the impact 99, more important, putting points on the board or keeping them off. Well, what do they say? Defense wins championships, right? I think if you have a suffocating defense and you can frustrate an opponent in a single elimination setting, that's better than getting into a track meet. I think it's always better in January to hit, not hurt, no bounties, but to hit hard And to keep offenses from scoring points because they end up being frustrated and it all spirals out of control. One thing that impresses me about the Super Bowl mentality in recent years, you know, it used to be if a team got up by seven or 10 points, that was it. They were freaked out. It was done. Now we've seen comebacks in recent years, a couple of dramatic comebacks by the Patriots. But I think in the lesser playoff games, there's still a tendency. You get down 10 or 14 points, you're getting banged around. It's cold out there. So it hurts even more if you're playing in the elements. I think good defense positions teams to get to the Super Bowl. And then when you get to the Super Bowl, I think you need both. You need to be balanced. Your defense needs to show up, and your offense needs to show up. Hashtag analysis. At Terry Gensler, 14, will the NFL pay less money to someone less competent if Al Riveron steps down? Uh, uh, I'd, I'd like to think they find someone more competent and pay more money. Who knows what the NFL will do. It was Dean Blandino who told us last week that maybe they don't properly value the position of VP of Officiating, maybe they will now. At so faux so real, why do you think the media stopped demanding the results of all those ball inflation studies the league promised us? When do the Patriots get their draft pick back? My gosh, three years later. But here's the thing: the the, the truth of the matter is the NFL is never going to give us the results of the ball inflation studies, the random spot checks. They started doing that in 2016. I don't know that they did it this year. They did it all of 2015 and 2016. And the reason they never disclosed the numbers is because for days when it was really cold, we would see similar numbers to what ultimately were gleaned from the Patriots footballs because as those balls were being tested and as those numbers were coming back below 12.5 PSI, no one in the room was smart enough and or everyone in the room wanted to catch the Patriots to realize that it was the atmospheric conditions that were causing it. And if they were to give us those real numbers, they'd be acknowledging that this Patriots deflate gate nonsense was all overblown. The And, and look, I, I understand that there were some fishy text messages. I understand that. But the Patriots ultimately were punished for a belief that they cheated in connection with the AFC championship game in January of 2015. And I think a fair assessment of the evidence, especially given the quality of the pressure gauges, given the past history regarding the procedures for testing the balls. I think the end result should have been, it's inconclusive as to whether or not there was any tampering with the footballs. Because if there was tampering, it, it would have been almost indetectable in comparison to what those numbers should have been. If there was tampering, if there was tampering, here's what I meant to say, if there was tampering, the number should have been two pounds or more lower in 11 or 12 footballs, in 12 or 12 footballs. Because if you put tampering on top of the impact of the atmospheric conditions and what that naturally does to the air pressure inside of the football, it should have been a dramatic difference. And the fact that it wasn't should have caused the NFL to say the results are inconclusive. But different forces were at play. And 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 I don't like it one bit. And the league knows I don't like it and they don't like me. And I don't care. At B-Flow Fo-Show, would you rather watch only the Titans' chief games Saturday or wear Morty Seinfeld glasses for a week on the show? Look, I won't wear... Here's the thing. If I wear those glasses, I will not look like Morty Seinfeld. I will look like Jerry Lewis, which is why I don't wear glasses. At B-Flow, faux Show sure, over under, before the end of next season, we find out how much Bill Belichick makes and changes the coaching payroll forever. I don't know that we're ever going to find out how much he makes. I think he'll probably get a raise now and we still won't know what he's making. The thinking is he's making $12.5 million, but nobody knows for sure. And if Gruden's worth $10 million, I say Belichick's worth $20 million. At Corey... Kostr- Kostriki. Kostriziki. Corey. Kost- How about just Corey? Does Tyrod have the ability, slash, will he put the team on his back against the Jaguars? Well, he may have to if LaShawn McCoy isn't 100% and he's got all the incentive he needs. They don't believe in you, right? I know he's saying all the right things. Hey, Tyrod, the Bills don't believe in you. Go out and prove them wrong. Isn't that something if he could pull that off and they would win and go to New England and pull that one off? That would be up there with Jaguars-Broncos from 1996. At Mike Durham, who gets a job first, Kaepernick or Manziel? It's a trick question. Manziel's getting a job in the CFL. Now, Kaepernick would get one if he wants one. He doesn't want one. And I saw that Greg Roman is staying with the Ravens. That's unfortunate for Kaepernick because if Roman had gone somewhere else as the offensive coordinator, there's a chance that Kaepernick goes there too. A chance. But it it appears that Roman is staying put. I think they've announced that Roman's staying put. He's now the assistant head coach in Baltimore. Next question at B flow faux show. What do you miss most about civil litigation? By the way, I love the various legal analyses you give about NFL issues. Really insightful. Thank you very much for that. Thank you, very, thank you. Thank you very much. What do I miss most about it? I miss most about being in trial because there is something exhilarating about the feeling of being out there on a tightrope with no net on being essentially the producer, the director, The writer and the actor in a play that is unfolding in real time, while someone else is trying to perform a completely separate play that is diametrically opposed to the play that you are putting on. You can plan all you want. I know lawyers who plan, 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 and they've got stacks and stacks of pages and notes, and they're ready for anything and everything. You can't be ready for anything and everything. You got to trust that you understand the facts of your case. You know what you need to prove. And when you walk into that pit, you've got another lawyer or more than one. And I used to love because I practiced alone the last nine years that I practiced. I loved it. The more lawyers they had at the other table, the better. But put ten there. Let's do it. Let's go. There was something ex- exhilarating about it. It was. It was. It was like an athletic competition without any any real, you know, physical exertion. Although when you're sleeping three or four hours a night during trial it feels like physical exertion. So I miss that part of it. I don't miss the preparing. I don't miss all the workup. I don't miss all the fighting that would occur among the lawyers, all the nasty letters you send back and forth. I, I don't miss having to deal with difficult clients, although I think I did a good job of, of selecting only the clients who would not be difficult. It's part of the screening process, but I miss I miss being at trial. I don't miss sitting there waiting for the jury to come back. That was the worst part, win or lose. When you're sitting there waiting to hear that loud knock on the door of the jury room, that that the more you do it i thought the more i did it the easier it would get the more you do that waiting for that knock the worse it gets it is pure agony because the thing is for you you move on to the next thing i mean when when you are consumed by a week or two of preparing for a trial and trying a case you've got to move on because you got all your other stuff that's piling up that needs work and that's the best part about losing there's no time to sit around and wallow in your misery the worst part about winning there's no time to sit around and say hey we won But for your client, that's their one shot. I mean, for me, I I got another one coming. I got another one coming. I got this one coming. I got that one coming. I'm going to stay on the horse here. But for the client, this is it. And they got a lot invested in it. They put themselves out there. They, They put themselves in a position where they were uncomfortable, where, you know, and typically I did a lot of employment work. So the playbook is make it as miserable as possible for the former employee, make them look bad, make them look horrible. They get dragged through the mud and if it doesn't work out for them when the verdict comes in, it just, it, that always shattered me because for them, that was it. For me, I'll be fine. I'll wake up tomorrow and I'll have no choice but to get out of bed and keep going. I always worried about my clients after a loss, like how, how many days can they not get out of bed? Does this make does this make it worse? It was bad enough that they lost a job that they've maybe had for 10, 15, 20 years or under circumstances that were very stressful and inappropriate. Now, on top of it all, they fought and they lost. That, 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 that was always something that I don't miss that. All right. I've talked way too much about myself. Uh, let's see what else is here. At Terry Gensler, could you see Jack Del Rio taking coordinator jobs specifically in Philadelphia? Schwartz leaves. Look, I, I, I could see Del Rio landing somewhere as a coordinator. And I, I wouldn't be shocked. You know, I, I was listening to the Ira Kaufman podcast earlier this week, and and there was questions about whether or not Dirk Cutter really wants Mike Smith back. And maybe Dirk Cutter is hoping that Mike Smith gets an opportunity elsewhere. Would it shock anyone if Dirk Cutter hired Jack Del Rio to be his defensive coordinator? It was Jack Del Rio that brought Dirk Cutter to the NFL from, I think, USC. I think he was an assistant coach at USC, if I recall correctly. And it was Del Rio that made Cutter an offensive coordinator. Maybe a quarterback's coach first and then offensive coordinator. But I think it'd be fitting if, if Cutter would hire Del Rio to be his defensive coordinator. And, and that's part of the reality that we got to keep in mind here. You know, when a guy gets hired, you got to hire who you can because people that would be at the top of your wish list, list may already have jobs. And then when those people become available, like Dowell Loggins, who is close with Adam Gase, right? Loggins becomes available. So Clyde Christensen is moved out of offensive coordinator and Loggins has the job there. That, that's a very real dynamic for a coach who's been on the job a year or two eventually some of your friends and trusted colleagues are going to be available to be hired. And maybe Del Rio ends up being the new defensive coordinator of the Buccaneers and Mike Smith. If he gets another job, man. Hey, Oh, can we have permission to interview him? Sure. Sure. Please, please be our guests. Let's see what else is here. Uh, At B flow Faux show. What's the chances that we see Jay Cutler suited up again next year? I don't know. I think he's back in the same spot that he was. I don't think he did enough this year to get anyone to come off from a big contract And I believe that unless there's another Ryan Tannehill injury or some other injury involving a coach who has some connection to Cutler, I don't think we're going to see him next year. And I assume he'll be back at Fox because he was in a three-man booth and that booth went to two and now they can add him back and make it a three-man booth for next year. I got to go. It's been over an hour already. One more at B flow show. I think the timing of this ESPN Pat's article is mesmerizing right before the Pat's. Uh, right before the week, the Pats are off, and ESPN gets the crappy 4.30 p.m. game. Yeah, I, I agree. I And I think it's more than that. I think it's about dominating today. I think it's about setting the agenda for the pregame shows over the weekend. And it's also about the story getting renewed life on Monday when Patriots players and coaches are available to be questioned by the media. And then it's about constantly being in the public eye up until the Patriots play next weekend. Genius. Genius. Uh, by ESPN. All right, one last, Terry Gensler wants to know if what text, was texted back by Shefty, why are you the way that you are? No, not this time. may have been another time and it may have been other people, but that that was not, what. And, and hey, if we want to play this game, if we want to make this the new game, we, we've already played to full resolution the you're better than that game. All right, let's make this the official game. What did Shefty text me after I accidentally texted to him that he looks like Morty Seinfeld with his new glasses. Go. Well, not now. Don't do it now. Do it when we do the next PFT PM. We'll do it on Monday after wildcard weekend, and who knows what the hell else is going to happen between now and then. We will be with you around the clock at profootballtalk.com all weekend long, PFT Live, Monday morning, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern on NBC Sports Radio, the final two hours, simulcast on NBCSN. Thank you, as always, for some of your time, and have a great weekend. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150.